Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I am your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me today is James Bond. No, sort of. Uh, For our first show of the year, we're still sort of taking a, a holiday break. Um, so we're going to dedicate this whole episode to the man 007, who has saved the world numerous times from terrorists and political traitors and megalomaniacs. He deserves a holiday break. <laughs> uh, but, you know, earlier this year, we did a recap of uh, a recap and a countdown of the best, the worst, the best James Bond movies. We're putting all that together in this episode, so sit back and enjoy. End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, uh, which we're not doing this week. We are going to be doing that James Bond listicle, as I said, and um, that will begin shortly. So the way it's going to go is we took the 24 James Bond movies that came out prior to the release of No Time to Die, which came out earlier um, in the... I was going to say earlier this year, but it's technically 2022 now. So (laughs) uh, it came out in October 2021, uh, way back before Omicron. Remember those times? Moving right along. Uh, So we're doing this in three sets, the 24 to... 13, 12 to 1, and then we'll have a special bonus cap at the end of the episode that will be dedicated to just the review of No Time to Die, the most recent James Bond movie. So we're going to kick things off uh, after this brief musical interlude to get you all revved up in the mood because uh, certainly... My experience and reputation cannot uh, set you up for what's coming with the James Bond. No one's going to confuse me with James Bond, is what I'm saying. So uh, sit right here. We will be back in just a click. Miss Goodnight. James! Aren't we a little overdressed, Goodnight? I like a girl in a bikini. No concealed weapons. Miss Goodnight, please. Mr. Bond. Now let's see what knick-knack has for us. Ah, mushrooms. The fried mushroom looks terribly interesting. Yes, I'd notice that. I'll get around to it later. Hmm. Excellent. Slightly reminiscent of a 34 Mouton. Then I must add it to my cellar. You uh, live well, Scaramanga. At a million dollars a contract, I can afford to, Mr. Bond. You work for Peanuts. 
A hearty well done from Her Majesty the Queen and a pittance of a pension. Apart from that, we are the same. So here we go. This is part one of our James Bond ranking. This is 24 to 13. Next week we'll do 12 to number one. And some of these are pretty... Looking back at some of them, they're pretty easy to find the... um, I don't know, find the places where they, the series has let you down. But it's also possible to find places where the series um, should be sort of more fondly remembered, these entries that uh, have been written off. But we'll get to a few of them, I think. So at number 24, I have A View to Kill, which was Roger Moore's last James Bond movie. I think he was like 57 when he made it. And boy, does it show, because... Pretty much all you ever see of Roger Moore is close-ups, unless he's just kind of standing there in, like, a long shot. (laughs) There really isn't much action that Roger Moore does. There's a lot of, actually, it's interesting to note there's a lot of great action in A View to Kill. Like, the opening ski stunt is um, really awesome to watch, but it keeps cutting back and forth to Roger Moore in, like, a mid-shot, like, from the waist up. Um clearly against like a projected screen and it's <laughs> it looking back is just really really distracting because Roger Moore was clearly not skiing on that mountain uh i do think a view to kill is notable because um you do get uh grace park not grace park i'm sorry um grace jones uh who was also in one of the conan movies i think conan the destroyer uh, she has this great build, this great athleticism. Uh, she's the main hench person to the the bad guy played by um, Christopher Walken, and boy does he ham it up in in this movie. It's it would have been an I think it would have been an interesting Bond. Uh, there's a lot of interesting bits to it, but I mean it just. Roger Moore's age, unfortunately, is just wicked distracting, and, it, it, you know, he's romancing women who are all half his age, and uh, it just doesn't work the way it should. You also get Patrick McNee in this, which was, like, an interesting crossover, because he was the co-star of The Avengers, which was a British TV show that was very inspired by the early James Bond movies. But, so, you know, there, there was there was some stuff to recommend. And there's, there's also a great, like, final fight on the Golden Gate Bridge. But, again, it's just, it, it doesn't it doesn't look quite right. Because Roger Moore's clearly doing none of the action stuff. Even just running. Uh, at 23, I have Die Another Day, which was Pierce Brosnan's last James Bond movie. And it's just, it's it sort of exemplifies all the over-the-topness and the CGI overload that was like part of the Brosnan era it was just excessive the product placement was excessive um you know the theme song by Madonna like in her EDM phase was rancid and then there's a Madonna cameo in it that just sticks out like a sore thumb it you know it just feels off like it's just too much it's just there's just too much bloat and the fact that you know it came out in 2002 on the heels of real life events in September 2001 and then on the heels of uh the Born Identity franchise getting going it, it there was just something really inauthentic to die another day um that does not hold up although you know you do get Halle Berry in a great role as one of the Bond girls and uh you get young Rosamund Pike as well <laughs> I think it was her big break um so it's one of those there 
there's some pluses and some minuses, but the minuses way outweigh the pluses. So I have uh, Moonraker at 22, and it literally feels like somebody went and saw Star Wars and said, let's make a Star Wars with James Bond. Um, there was a lot of this in the Roger Moore era in the 70s, this sort of reactiveness to things going on in other um, cinematic trends. And so Moonraker fits in that regard. Um, it does have, I think, one of the best Bond girls in the unfortunately named um, Holly Goodhead. But uh, it is just, it's silly, it's so over the top. By the time you get to the end with like the space marines having a laser fight with the bad guys outside of a space station, it, it is just to say nothing of, you know, the the henchman Jaws, um, <laughs> you know, basically going good because he finds true love, which, uh, anyway, there is so much bad in it. I, I admire the ambition. Actually, there is something, and you find this with a lot of Bond movies, there is some kind of interesting story at its heart that just gets way taken off the rails by just, like, the lavish production and the spectacle and, anyway... Uh, at 21, I have Tomorrow Never Dies, which uh, was Pierce Brosnan's second James Bond. It is notable for having Michelle Yeoh as one of the Bond girls, and it's one of the first times, one of the few times that the Bond girl has like real agency, and she's she comes into the film not necessarily in love interest mode. Um it's a real acknowledgement that the world has changed and you have these really butt-kicking uh, actresses like Michelle Yeoh, uh, who doesn't automatically become a damsel in, damsel in distress. Uh, but again, you, this is where you sort of see the start of the, Bro the Brosnan era bloat, and you have this bad guy who's basically a, a media mogul megalomaniac played by Jonathan Price, who's honestly better in the G.I. Joe movies as a as a crazy Bond villain than he is in Bond. Uh, number 20, there's Octopussy, which again is one of these Roger one from the Roger Moore era. Um, but it's, it's another Bond movie where there's a good idea at its heart with like setting up this woman who is uh, kind of the center of this, I want to say cult, but it's kind of not a cult. It's like kind of, she's, kind of a freelancer with her own team of um, butt-kicking women. They're kind of like Amazons, actually, come to think of it, which is, is, is interesting, but the movie really should focus on Bond meeting his match in this woman who's kind of like a female Blofeld, and instead there's all this stuff about, um, you know, exiled Afghan princes working with the Soviets to create a situation where a nuclear bomb goes off in West Germany, which prompts um, a, a basically World War III, which this crazy Russian general thinks he can win. Uh, there's Fabergé egg hijinks. It's uh, it, it just, ugh, it's too much. It, it's too much, and there's also the whole titillation factor with, you know, people saying octopusy every three minutes, so... At 19, there's Quantum of Solace, which is Daniel Craig's second Bond movie. I think this, it falters somewhat because of the very tight schedule. Casino Royale comes out, and two years later, this comes out. But in between, there's a writer's strike 
in between. I think they were hoping that they would get the rights to Spectre back so they can do this like properly um, instead of introducing like an interim bad guy agency led by Matthew Almerick, who's not exactly a physical threat to Bond either, uh, especially the Daniel Craig Bond, who's sort of like built for action. Um, it, it strikes me as um, a bit rushed, like they could have taken the time and maybe had waited like an extra year to really flesh out the script. And again, it was like, there's a story about how Paul Haggis was basically feeding script pages into the fax machine as the deadline uh, for the strike, the writer's strike to begin was coming up. So it just, like a lot of movies in 2008 and 2000, 2008, 2009, they were hampered, hamstrung by sort of the limited capacity of the writers to actually write a movie so at number 18 uh i have the world is not enough which is from 1999 it was a brosnan bond and a lot of people focus on denise richards as a nuclear scientist which i mean there's a, a lot of this in the bond movies where a woman is hired obviously for her good looks not necessarily how believable she is in a certain role I like The World Is Not Enough for Sophie Marceau as the femme fatale. She does, like, crazy um, Helsinki syndrome really well. And then Robert Carlyle, uh, who's then most known for train spotting, uh, he was a really great sort of oily Russian bad guy that you don't get very often in the Bond movies anymore. So I think those two things sort of save The World Is Not Enough. And uh, I, I thought the theme song actually was pretty good. Garbage. Uh did a really good theme song for of course uh world is not enough it just occurred to me the last film of desmond llewellyn who played q in almost every bond movie there are a couple of the ones a couple of ones where he did not appear but he is q for most of those first 19 movies and uh that must be some kind of record just to to be the guy in 19 different movies over 30 years <laughs> popping up <laughs> as as the same guy. At number 17, I have The Man with the Golden Gun, which, again, if they had just boiled this script down a bit more and just had it been like a face-off between Bond and this uh, assassin with a golden gun, played by Christopher Lee, um, who's kind of like Bond's dark opposite, and there's a lot of discussion about this in the film. It would have been a much better film, but, I mean, there's a whole thing about solar power and this um, bad guy played by Christopher Lee trying to um, corner the market on solar power, um, which is... I, I could take it or leave it. It it really should have just been like a kind of a two hander with these two like master assassins like fighting each other. Speaking of overbaked, at number sixteen I have Spectre, which is the last James Bond movie that the one that came out in twenty fifteen. It is doing so much heavy lifting because it's bringing Spectre back into the Bond fold. That the Eon Productions having finally unwound those rights. Um, it could have been Craig's last movie, so it had to be like a proper send-off. They're trying to build this like overarching mythology from the beginning of Casino Royale that, you know, uh, Blofeld was behind everything, which falls flat. And then you have Christoph Waltz playing both Blofeld, which is probably the most obvious bit of casting in the world. And they do hope this whole, th you know, Benedict Cumberbatch and Star Trek Into Darkness thing. Is he playing Khan? Isn't he Khan? Well, they do the same thing with uh, Blofeld in Spectre. It's like, he's Franz Uberfeld. No, he's actually Blofeld, which, you know, everybody knew going into this. This film also 
commits the cardinal sin of wasting Monica Bellucci, um, which should uh, result in heavy jail fines. Anyway, uh, we're running out of time here, so I'm going to try and get these last three done quickly. Diamonds Are Forever, Great Shirley Bassey song, uh, Connery's Last Bond. You can see he's getting a little long in the tooth, but he's still pretty solid. It's also the last time Blofeld's in Bond until Spectre. Um, but it's interesting, and uh, it's it, the plot is easy to understand, easy to di- easy to digest. It's a little over the top, but not too much. Live and Let Die. Again, this is Bond reacting to cinematic trends because it, it this has a heavy black exploitation feel, including long periods in Harlem and New Orleans. Uh, Voodoo is kind of the the bad guy. It does feature like young Jane Seymour as the Bond girl, as this kind of like psychic uh, who t- does tarot cards, and she's really good. Uh, she's a really great discovery. Um, because this was like her first big film, but like Yafet Kodo as this like Caribbean warlord is uh, not great. But like the whole thing, like is there magic in James Bond? Is voodoo real? Like that it's the, the movie does not service all that well. And so at number thirteen, I have License to Kill which is Timothy Dalton, and Timothy Dalton is a great James Bond. There's like this kind of crazy aspect to him where you not a hundred percent sure that he's going to walk into a room and kill everybody. Um, Timothy Dalton, he's only in two James Bond movies, but he's not in only two because he was bad. It's just because of financial difficulties at MGM that resulted in like long stretches of bond, them not being able to produce a bond movie because they just were like on the verge of bankruptcy or were bankrupt. And Timothy Dalton was really kind of essentially robbed of that because his two bonds are, wonderful he is wonderful in them and um i wish he could have gotten more opportunity to do more we will be right back with our james bond ranking after another brief interlude you are listening to cfru 93.3 fm guelph campus and community radio files on anyone who might have had access or authority at Seven Iron. The top name on the list is an old friend of yours, I understand. Oromov. They made him a general. He sees himself as the next Iron Man of Russia, which is why our political analysts rule him out. He doesn't fit the profile of a traitor. Are these the same analysts who said the Golden Eye couldn't exist? who said the helicopter posed no immediate threat and wasn't worth following? You don't like me, Bond. You don't like my methods. You think I'm an accountant, a bean counter, more interested in my numbers and your instincts. The thought had occurred to me. Good. 
because I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War, whose boyish charms, though wasted on me, obviously appeal to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. Point taken. Not quite, 007. If you think for one moment I don't have the balls to send a man out to die, your instincts are dead wrong. I've no compunction about sending you to your death, but I won't do it on a whim, even with your cavalier attitude towards life. So we'll pick up where we left off. So that was number 12. And this is You Only Live Twice, which was Sean Connery's second-to-last James Bond movie. You can sort of tell in it he's kind of getting a little weary of <laughs> of being James Bond. This would be his fifth one at this point. Um, they're getting more and more ambitious, of course. Uh, this is kind of the first one where we see Blofeld face-to-face. Um... I think it's the first one we see him, like, in the face, but I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure it is, though. But it's played by Donald Pleasance, who I think it may be the best Blofeld. <laughs> uh, the plot is kind of ludicrous with Blofeld, like, kidnapping astronauts. and uh, But it, it, the, the more problem... I mean, not that the James Bond movies aren't the early ones anyway. Some of the later ones, too, aren't problematic. But, I mean, this one's kind of especially problematic because in it, James Bond has to go undercover as a Japanese man. And, uh, you know, I, I think in somebody's mind while making this movie, maybe, you know, Lewis Gilbert, who is the director, you know, they thought they were doing good. They were trying to be progressive because getting, you know, this misogynistic dinosaur James Bond to show proper, like, Japanese respect... Uh, I'm sure that was what they told themselves, but it just doesn't work out. Um, and it's <laughs> it's this like kind of long, painful to watch sequence in in 2021 as James Bond is transformed in air quotes uh, into an undercover Japanese man because it he's very clearly uh, a gruff looking Scottish man, no matter how you do his hair. So we go from that. <clears throat> to number 11, which is The Spy Who Loved Me, which was a Roger Moore outing. Um, kind of in, in the middle there. It was right before Moon Ranker. Um, so it's not quite ludicrous yet. The plot is that um, they're trying to find this guy who's trying to start a war between Russia and the West and uh, Bond descent. Uh, on behalf of the West, there's a Russian agent who's sent, whose whose codename is Triple X, so real subtle. Uh, and there's uh, there's obviously a sexual dimension because she's a female Soviet agent, and he's the macho Western agent James Bond. <laughs> uh, but I mean, added to that is the fact that in the opening sequence, you see James Bond kill her lover, although you find that out. You don't find that out as you're watching it. You find out later when she's given the bad news. So in this in, in this midpoint, she finds out James Bond in the middle of their mission that James Bond killed her lover. And she's like, well, when this is over... Uh, of course, I mean, it doesn't end up like that. It would have been interesting if this had ended in like some sort of actual confrontation rather than just, you know, James Bond getting laid again. But um, I think that's probably the most disappointing thing about the movie otherwise it's like a perfectly serviceable adventure the villain is kind of forgettable but um 
you know, there's some great like gadgets and settings and um it kind of it kind of balances the best of like these sort of bond extreme settings because there's a there's a skiing sequence, there's an underwater sequence. Sometimes James Bond movies only have time for one or the other, but uh in The Spy Who Loved Me you get both. Uh also Spy Who Loved Me introduced Jaws, who is probably remains probably the most famous of the James Bond henchmen and uh the actor who plays Jaws is is just wonderful in it. There's a scene where Jaws fights a tiger shark and he bites the shark with his metal jaw. It's it's perfect. Chef's kiss. Um, <laughs> number ten is from Russia with Love, which um, is an, one of the the second James Bond movie. You can tell they're still trying to find the rhythm. It's more procedural. It's kind of like it's not a big story either because in it it's about James Bond trying to get like this. Soviet decoder thing, and then trying to sneak it out of um, Soviet territory. And part of the plot is like trying is he has to romance this Russian civil servant who has also been set up by Spectre to be like some sort of Trojan horse. That's not explicitly clear because as soon as she's in James Bond's orbit, she falls head over heels in love with him, <laughs> even though he's clearly not. He's clearly there on business. Let's say. Um, but it's still, I mean, because Sean Connery's so great in the role, and, um, I find these early James Bond films very interesting, that they're not relying so much on gadgets and buffoonery. And from Russia with Love, you know, it's the first movie with Q in it, but he's not identified as Q in the cast list. Q has a name, and you can look it up when you, like, go wiki from Russia with Love, and you can find Q's name. They only use it twice in the series. Uh, number nine, I have The Living Daylights, which is Timothy Dalton's first mo- uh, first Bond movie. Uh, it's also kind of like the last Cold War Bond, because License to Kill is about like drug running in South America. It's uh, not so much about Cold War stuff. So um, this is kind of like the last Cold War Bond, which makes it interesting. It is... It's kind of not... Much of the Roger Moore era, of course, was typified by like this silliness and over the topness and bigness and ripping off movie trends and like the last Roger Moore movie ends with a fight on top of the Golden Gate Bridge and a blimp. Uh, the Living Daylights is much more slicker, uh, much more grounded. Uh, Timothy Dalton comes in; he's like a breath of fresh air because he has this look in his eye where he's kind of mad. Uh, I don't mean angry; I mean like crazy. Um, he's a, a very different Bond than what we've seen before, and it's very interesting sort of watching him work in this very sort of standard, kind of old-fashioned Bond adventure, where it's about who's got what motive to do what, and it, it, it all centers around this Russian general played by uh, Jeron Krabbe, who people probably recognize most from The Fugitive, the Harrison Ford movie The Fugitive. He's the crooked doctor that set up Dr. Kimball. Um, but he's great in it. And uh, it, 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 it showed real promise for what at the time I guess people hoped would have been four or five <laughs> Timothy Dalton adventures. Timothy Dalton, gets a, again, he gets a bad rap because he was only in two Bond movies. But that's unfair to him because uh, that wasn't his fault. Uh, which we m- might get to a bit later. Doctor No is at number eight. Again, this, it, it's it's a very sort of procedural Bond film. It's about him following clues, not necessarily not necessarily going from stunt to stunt to stunt. 
Um, so it has a very different flavor, a very kind of relaxed uh, flavor, kind of a bit more dangerous kind of flavor because it's not about like the jetpacks and the underwater subs and the cars that turn into subs and cars that turn into airplanes and all that stuff later on. It's it's very, very pared down, but it's it's a relaxed bond, shall we say? But um, it, it does set a course for a lot of what we see later on. At number seven, I have Casino Royale, which rebooted the Bond franchise with Daniel Craig. Uh, he, I think people... This was before social media, too. So when he was announced as the new Bond, people were like, what the hell is this? He's blonde. He's not, like, conventionally handsome. He, you know, um, he's kind of rougher. And what's interesting is that Probably no other Bond has been as close to the Connery mold as Daniel Craig. And he really uses it. This idea of Bond as like a blunt instrument. And the movie does... The movie's really good at showing those cues and sort of sending that message without necessarily talking about it out loud. Like in the parkour chase that starts off where the guy's leaping over fences and buildings and Bond just like bursts through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. Um... He's not suave and sophisticated, he's he's on the job, he's all business, and it was the start of something beautiful. Daniel Craig. Everyone had everyone had written him out until they had actually seen the movie. At number six I have For Your Eyes Only. This is the uh, the second Roger Moore movie on this list. It came after Moonraker, which <laughs> I I think somebody was sitting in the audience for at that premiere and said we've gone too far let's bring let's reel it in <laughs> this is crazy bond in space uh space marines with lasers laser fights no we've gone too far so it it comes down to earth almost literally and the movie actually starts on this very somber note with bond going to his wife's grave and leaving flowers which is not necessarily always addressed in these films although it, it does occasionally sometimes come up that you know bond had a wife and we will get to that movie shortly and uh yeah it, it's it's interesting that um it starts on this very somber note and then it gets sort of right into this kind of weird adventure and again it's it's very down to earth it's about this British missile system that it's on a boat. It, the boat gets sunk. He has to race the Russians to get it. Um, there's a kind of very Julian Glover, who people may know from Game of Thrones as the the very crooked maester in King's Landing, and also from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where he plays the American businessman turned Nazi turncoat. So it it. It really scales back, and it feels very refreshing in that way, even though we're kind of getting into Moore's um, latter years. Uh, he's still pretty solid in for, for Your Eyes Only, too. At number five, I have Goldeneye, which is Pierce Brosnan's first Bond. Um, it comes after this six-year period where MGM is struggling financially. Pierce Brosnan, of course, famously was... Um, going to be Bond for The Living Daylights. He was the first choice of the producers and the studio... Uh, he was attached at the time to a TV show called Remington Steel, which was essentially, essentially Bond practice, if you go back and watch that show. But um, as soon as it came out that Pierce Brosnan was being considered for Bond, the show had been canceled. And so P Pierce Brosnan 
was then essentially free to be bought, and as soon as there was interest around Pierce Brosnan, NBC brought the show back, so he had to do the show and not be Bond in 1987, which may have worked out well for him, because he gets to come back in 95 in this really solid GoldenEye movie, which um, there's no fat on it, because MGM couldn't afford the fat. Um, you get a really great villain in Sean Bean, as well as uh, Famke Johnson as Xenia Onatop, maybe one of the best sort of female henchmen, best, one of the best female characters, perhaps, period, in the James Bond movies. Uh, you deal with the fallout of the Cold War. You get Judy Dench as a female M. Just brilliant, brilliant uh, sort of rejuvenation of the franchise after a long hiatus. Too bad the Bruce Brosnans didn't fare as well. Anyway, at number four, we have Skyfall, which is super ambitious for the 50th anniversary of the franchise. Although there's precious little sort of like nostalgia tripping in it. It's a very... Um, fascinating uh sort of story in that Cass M basically M becomes the Bond girl in the story which is a very interesting direction to make Judy M the Bond girl in the movie and you get a lot of you get like new versions of Money Penny and Q and uh you get the great title song by Adele uh Roger Deakins doing the cinematography uh for Sam Mendes as the director just beautiful there's this beautiful sequence I can't I think it's in Shanghai where you get all, all this neon lights fading in and out as Bond is hunting this um, hired assassin. Just it, it's perhaps as close as we get to f- cinematic brilliance in a modern James Bond movie. Uh, a number three of On Your Majesty's Secret Service, which it, it's. It's kind of The Last Jedi. When, when you go back and sort of read the reaction to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, it's kind of The Last Jedi at the time because it completely shakes up the formula. And people didn't like it. People didn't like the shaking up of the James Bond formula. Look at George Lazenby, who is more accessible than Connery. He still has a, this kind of raw physicality as Connery, but he's, he was a model. He was the, This was his first movie role. But he has also a warmth as well. He's also more physical. I'm not saying that Sean Connery wasn't physical, but... George Lazenby, you can actually see him in the action sequences. They made a, 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 an effort to show him actually doing the fighting. And he has a great physicality as well. Plus, you get this great relationship with Diana Rigg, who is so beautiful, so fierce in it. Um, although she disappears through much of the middle portion of the movie, but you really do believe that there is a, a, like a viable human romantic connection between her and Bond. And that makes the end so much more tragic um to see a bond movie which ends with like blofeld doing a drive-by of james bond and his newly married wife and she gets killed and he's there holding her weeping you would (laughs) not knowing what happens in no time to die but it's hard to believe you would get away with that now um and that's one of the many reasons why on her majesty's secret service is is quietly brilliant it's a very dangerous movie in, in sort of the blockbuster sense. So for number two and number one, I have Thunderball and Goldfinger, respectively. And perhaps these two are interchangeable in a sense. I, I highlight Goldfinger a little bit more because uh, Ulrich Goldfinger is just such a great villain. Um, you also have um, Honor Blackman as Pussy Galore, one of the most well-known of the Bond girls, but she's also a fascinating character, too. I mean, 
her her name her, her unfortunate name aside and you also get like several like very iconic scenes like the the scene of um Jill Masterson covered in gold paint lying on the bed uh, but these are the two films that sort of secure what we think of bond movies in terms of all the tropes and things so they're very consequential like these are the two movies where bond essentially becomes bond and I'm not saying they're interchangeable at all. I think, you know, Thunderbolt has some great sequences. It has the jetpack. It has the uh, the fight in the um, Spectre, this huge Spectre facility. It, it's really quite brilliantly done. But Goldfinger is essentially where Bond becomes Bond with the, the villainy, the, the Bond girls, the whole villain capturing Bond and strapping him to a table to laser him and all that stuff. So... Goldfinger is the Bond we think about when we think about Bond. Now that we have ranked all the first 24 James Bond movies, we will get a little more in-depth with number 25, No Time to Die. This will put you in the mood. It is literally the music, or literally the theme song from No Time to Die, the Billie Eilish hit. You are listening to CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. It was disturbing, to say the least. Wait till you see what it looks like up close. Uh, Bond's in the office. What? Oh, Bond! My God, I haven't seen you in, 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 in a... Uh, how is your retirement? Shut up, Q. I know he's staying with you. And you're not in the clear either. What happened? He's been reinstated as a double O. Double O what? And that was music and a clip from No Time to Die. It is the new film from Kara Joy Fukunawa, and it stars Daniel Craig, Leia Sado, Rami Malek, Lashana Lynch, Ben Wishaw, Naomi Harris, Jeffrey Wright, Christoph Waltz, and Ray Fiennes. And it was the 25th James Bond movie that came out earlier this year, and uh, it was still a smash hit worldwide and didn't do as well at the box office as previous Bond movies domestically, which is a shame because it is probably it is this weird combination of 
different Bond styles. It is the capstone, it's the series finale of the Daniel Craig Bond series, but it is probably the closest we have gotten to sort of classically flavored James Bond in years, because we have Rami Malek playing a megalomaniac villain. He wants to, to kill the world. You have uh, James Bond being you know, sort of dragged into this complex mystery involving Spectre and uh, how Malik's involved. And uh, you have Q and Manny Penny and M and, you know, the whole gang is, is here. Uh, you have Blofeld in, a, in another prominent role. Uh, but it's also a, a story that doesn't feel like your typical James Bond movie. Um, it feels like it's grown a lot and not just, you know, the Craig era James Bond, but I mean, Bond in, in, in generally has grown. I mean, there, there's kind of no casual sex in it or casual sexism, I should say. Um, there are real stakes for Bond. He's struggling to, between whether he wants to continue to be, uh, a super spy, whether he wants to get involved, whether he wants to sort of enjoy retirement, whether he can trust uh, the, the woman he loves, whether he can find love again, whether he can get over his own BS and all this stuff. You know, perhaps the most um, telling thing from the movie is in terms of just how Bond has changed. And this perhaps goes to the professional relationship between Daniel Craig and Ana de Armas, which because they were... Uh, co-stars and Knives Out, and apparently, from what I understand, uh, the the role that Anna Darmus plays in No Time to Die was sort of carved out for her at Craig's request because he enjoyed working with her so much. But Anna Darmus plays this character who is a CIA operative, um, and she she comes into the film and she's just kind of so uh, fresh and young, and and she's. Um, enjoying uh being out on what you assume i think she even states it outright that it's like her first mission and th there's a lot of this in the history of the james bond franchise where uh for some strange reason he's paired up with like this rookie agent who's a woman who's like functionally not terribly helpful uh you heard a bit of that in the <laughs> clip earlier from the man with the golden gun um Miss Goodnight is kind of uh, an obvious example of this. So when Paloma, the 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 Anna de Armas character, walks in, you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, what's what's she gonna do? And of course, I mean, it's spoiled because of the the trailers, which I'm pretty much used every single action scene that she is in, which is kind of like every scene Anna de Armas is in, but. Um, she comes into this thing to show just like how capable she is. Like she and her and Bond make an effective team. He doesn't get out of that situation if he do, if she doesn't have his back, which lampshades a lot of what has been done in previous Bond movies, where you have this feckless, hopeless, pointless female sidekick who's basically around for Bond to, if not belittling her with like misogynist insight, is is also there to service him, uh, for his physical sexual pleasure but not on a darmus and not in no time to die that surprisingly isn't in there it's not that she doesn't look gorgeous in an evening dress that is certainly played up as well but it's also functional like she kicks all kinds of butt <laughs> so 
that's kind of one example of of just how um, the, the series has changed in tone. And I, I imagine a lot of this also has to do with Phoebe Waller-Bridge being involved in the screenwriting process. Um, one of the more interesting things about this movie, and, it, you know, probably on a surface level, it's kind of a fairly pedestrian Bond adventure um you know, there's a bad guy. He's got an evil island where he's making evil plans and Bond has to go in and bust him up. A lot of what makes No Time to Die interesting, or at least compelling, is that there is this element of finality to it. Um, <laughs> it, it the running time is long, and normally that is kind of a turnoff, but it is interesting because... Again, it has this feeling of a series finale, of we're we're trying to cram in as many things as we can. It feels like there should have been a movie, a whole other movie between uh, the last film Spectre and No Time to Die. Um, obviously, that didn't come about, but it feels like it's trying to do a lot. It is covering a lot of ground because it is trying to make this a capstone to Daniel Craig's time as James Bond. And fair enough, but it is something that the James Bond movies have never done before or never felt really compelled to do. Um, like, Sean Connery just kind of leaves at the, the end of Diamonds Are Forever and it's kind of not remarked upon. George Lazenby comes in and he's one and done. You know, Roger Moore ages out. I mean, they were lucky to get his, whatever they could out of him in A View to, view to a Kill. Um... And then both Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan are kind of just left behind because of like internal politics, or um, in the case of Dalton, because MGM money or MGM was like on the brink of brink of bankruptcy for <laughs> the better part of a decade. Perhaps that will change now that Amazon owns MGM and uh, all that Amazon money can underwrite any James Bond adventure. You wish, but I mean, that's going to be something that's very interesting going forward, because I don't want to spoil it, considering that No Time to Die just almost recently came out on VOD, and perhaps people are just discovering it now, or are thinking about discovering it, because there is a very big finale, uh, a final element to it, that this, this there's a part of this that this is the end of Daniel Craig's tenure as James Bond, and how does that pick up? After, when when he inevitably come back to another James Bond movie, whether that's in two years or three years or whenever, um, it's going to be a whole new James Bond for sure. But do we start at the beginning again? Uh, is it another origin story for James Bond, or is it going to be like we're going to pick up mid James Bond, like <laughs> the upcoming um, Matt Reeves, the Batman, where it's not necessarily the beginning of Batman's career, but it's like Batman a couple of years into his career. Uh, that's I mean, there's going to be interesting decisions being made about that, but it's also going to be pain in the ass, um, fanboy, clickbait stuff. I mean, I, I, I was originally like kind of dead set against the ending and, and like putting this like period on this um, era of James Bond because I just like I, the, the clickbait headlines started appearing in my head. What does this mean for the future of James Bond? Is like, is this person playing an old new Bond, or is it just it's it's all like the silliness of of um, 
film commentary and, and entertainment news coverage now that I just uh, sort of bang my head against the wall worrying about. But I did, however, come to enjoy the ending. I, I did enjoy that this sense of closure for the Craig era because this was a very interesting era of Bond and watching it play out on screen, struggling with these ideas of like, what what does James Bond mean in the 21st century post 9-11? The, like the, Bros- the last Brosnan movie, Die Another Day, came out after 9-11, but it really didn't deal with how how the world had changed in any real significant way. The, the Daniel Craig movies have all about how the world has changed with technology and with drone strikes and uh, universal surveillance. Um, you know, does a man with a license to kill really matter in the 21st century? There's also a lot of going to be interesting discussions happening about what the next James Bond looks like. And the producers of James Bond have said that... Uh, it will be a British male. They have sort of discounted the possibility of uh, a female uh, James Bond. Uh, but in James Bond still being male, there's still a whole um, a whole bunch of opportunities. For instance, you know, when we're talking about the Cold War, having a white <laughs> having a white James Bond makes a lot of sense when you know they're. Sh- they're, they're shuttling in and out of Eastern Europe where there are a lot of white people. But, you know, in an era where the problems are in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, does it make sense to have a white man be James Bond dealing with those problems? Would it not make more sense for him to be brown or black or Asian? Um, I will stand by this again. I think Henry Golding is someone who would make a very interesting James Bond. He's He brings this sort of, like, suaveness, this charisma, and... Uh, you know, he, we know that he can handle himself in action. See uh, the gentleman from, uh, what's his face, Guy Ritchie, or he was also in uh, G.I. Joe, the most recent G.I. Joe movie about, about the origin story of Snake Eyes. Um, so he would be an interesting choice. I would be interested to see that. Uh, Henry Goulding as James Bond. Um, I there are probably, uh, <laughs> you know, if you want to see sort of like a, a rough and tumble sort of in the, in the, Daniel Craig Mole, Daniel Kaluuya would be an interesting choice. My suspicion, though, is that um, you, you see these these trends go with Bond, where you have like a very dark and serious Bond in the mold of Connery, and then you come into someone a bit more lighter, like a Lazenby. Of course, they went back to Connery, and the, but then they come back to Roger Moore, who's again kind of more dashing, more lighthearted, and then we come back to a ultra serious, like sort of dead-eyed Bond in the form of Timothy Dalton, and then we go to a more lighter um, Pierce Brosnan before coming back to grounded and earthy and and violent again with Daniel Craig. So just by by sheer um, timing, we 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 are probably going to go for the lighter Bond model in terms of tone, uh, it will be interesting to see if, if that um, that is something that plays out. It will also be interesting to see who they get to direct the next one. Uh, will it be, like Denis Villeneuve has talked about directing Bond, he, he hasn't had time for it because of his commitments to um, 
well, for in previously Blade Runner twenty forty nine, then Dune. Uh, he is dedicated to make another Dune, uh, and I think he also recently signed uh, Rendezvous with Rama to to look about making that movie. So he's very much in the sci fi mold. Who else can step in? I don't know. It, you know, uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see. And how heavy handed might Amazon be? You know, granted, it's been in the hands of the Broccoli's for fifty almost 60 years actually come to think of it this is the 60th anniversary of james bond this year since the release of dr no in 1962 so it'll be a 60 it, it, this will be a significant year for bond and it'd be interesting to see if they um attach themselves um to the anniversary to make some big announcements or big waves um announce the new james bond announce a new direction announce a new creative team who knows what might, might might happen? There are a lot of different opportunities here. Um, I hope they don't throw it all out, <laughs> throw out the baby with the bathwater, because there are a lot of really interesting aspects to Bond uh, in this recent round. Like uh, Ray Fiennes was a great M, Ben Winshaw was a great Q. Um, we don't need to throw it all away just because Daniel Craig's not around anymore. Look, well, they kept Judy Dench after Pierce Brosnan uh, left. So I don't know. They don't have to take my advice, and they probably won't. No one closely associated with James Bond probably listens to this show. But you do, and I appreciate that. And we will be coming back with all new episodes and new reviews starting next week. I know you're on pins and needles uh, waiting for for that to finally happen, and it will next week. No more, no more canned shows <laughs> for a while, anyway. Uh, we'll see what happens. So that is it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. And if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. Download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you're on Spotify, you can find much of the music that you hear on the End Credits Show. Just open up your Spotify app and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will be back here on CFRU tomorrow at 5 p.m. for a brand new episode of Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another great episode of End Credits, and we will see you then. Oh, and for real new episode next time. Definitely new, definitely not canned. I just wanted to point that out. We will see you next time. (laughs) 